Um, thanks to everyone for joining us. My name's Daniel. I'm a member of Workers' Liberty. I'm going to be chairing the discussion tonight. Um, tonight's discussion is going to be looking at the recent uh, and, in a sense, ongoing um, US presidential election and the prospects for the socialist class struggle left in the USA. Um, we've got three speakers, um, two of whom are our guests from the States. Um, Ruth Cashman, who's an activist with Workers' Liberty here in um, the UK, is going to speak first to kind of give our perspective um, on uh, what's going, going on. And then we're uh, very lucky to be joined by two comrades from America, um, Robert Cuffey, who is a Guyanese socialist based in New York and who's active in the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and uh, Thomas Harrison, who's a member of the editorial board of New Politics, which is a long-standing um, socialist journal in the kind of third camp tradition that um, Workers' Liberty also identifies with. Uh, thanks, Daniel. So I'm Ruth, I'm a Workers' Liberty activist and I'm secretary of Unison in Lambeth, which is a local government schools and care union. Uh, so the American electorate voted on November 3rd to remove Donald Trump from the presidency, a majority voting instead for Democrat Biden, not by the margin we might have expected, Biden didn't take all the seats, we, the states that we thought that he would, and the vote was closer in several states than was expected. The best of our class in the US are celebrating the defeat of Trump and the rejection of his policies, bigotry, and attacks of, on democracy. Some saw in Biden a better route to answer the crises in the US and across the world, the coronavirus pandemic, recession, and runaway climate change. Elements on the left who suggest how close it came could be seen as a rejection of Biden's neoliberal politics, reading into success of left candidates and the failures of some right-wing Democrats and saying that a Sanders or similar ticket would have done much better, I think are being overly optimistic. Of course, the capitalist politics Biden represents created the social conditions for Trump. Areas of the country will have to die with the decline of the US economy. The labor movement has been beaten back and shackled. But working class anger and resentment can't simply be redirected from the right to the left overnight. And in fact, Biden's vote was strong despite weaknesses in the campaign and the voter suppression. More votes than any previous US president. It was a uniquely polarizing election. The mistake of pollsters and of the media was not misreading Biden's support, but to underestimate the strength of Trump's base. 73 million voters supported him after seeing his first term after the kids in cages, after the winks to the far-right militias, after the endless racism and sexism, phenomenal mismanagement of a public health crisis, spreading of conspiracy theories, and in the midst of spiraling unemployment in the US. He ran an, an unapologetic campaign and it did not damage his support. He's built a large but chaotic alliance of libertarians, racists, small far-right organizations, one of the middle Republicans, Christian rightists, conservatives, and conspiracy theorists. This is a serious problem for the left to deal with. There aren't quick solutions to it. It requires a concerted political project. We need to break and reconstitute the political system. There are no shortcuts around convincing a majority of class politics, even more so when that requires breaking through a well-embedded politics of irrationality, nationalism, and racism. We need to sound the alarm now and to mobilize. The forces that created Trump will continue to grow as will the far right. The continued decline of America as an economic power will only swell their ranks if we fail to offer an alternative. Trumpism does not end with this election, although Trump as its head may well do. 
We've seen large protests, pro-Trump demos over the weekend, but I think these were largely contained by the US state. We know that Republicans are attempting legal challenges, but they're likely to be unsuccessful. In the assumptions about a potential success of a Trump coup, which now look increasingly unlikely, there was some overemphasis on the fragility of the US bourgeois democracy. It was always unlikely that it would be swept away over the 2020 presidential election. But that doesn't mean we should be complacent about democratic threats. The demonstrations and the limited threats of strike action against Trump's attempt to hold on were the right thing to do. But we need to be realistic about what the real threats are. The US democracy is robust, but it's also incomplete. There are extraordinary democratic deficits, even in comparison to your standard bourgeois political system. It doesn't just lack a workers' party, it barely has bourgeois parties. The left need to take up democratic demands. The Electoral College should be abolished. There needs to be drastic action against voter suppression. Access to the ballot needs to be made easy. 5.1 million people across the US were barred from voting in this election due to a felony conviction. That's roughly one in 44 adults. Along with permanent residency papers, we have to fight for the right to vote for all migrants in the country. If not scrapping the Senate, we must at least call for the state's representation to be proportional to their population. There needs to be action on gerrymandering, used not only to fix elections, but by the big two parties to fix primaries. And calls for proportional representation are needed to help socialist candidates break the two-party system and build independent electoral presence. Biden doesn't just need to deal with COVID, he needs to deal with an economic crisis too. Given the depth of the problem, we can expect some Keynesian measures, which we've seen from many right-wing governments so far, including some of which will benefit to a limited way workers, government relief for job retention, debt holidays, or even limited debt cancellation. But this will not in any way change the fact that capitalists by their nature will seek to make the working class pay for the crisis. Governments like in 2008 will look to socialise losses in the economy where they can, whilst gains stay private. They will look to protect bosses rather than workers. We'll inevitably see lost jobs, repossessions, cuts, and in a country with a scant social security safety net. There is, however, nothing inevitable about them succeeding to make the workers pay. Struggle will decide. In the 1930s in the US, workers came out of the crisis with better wages and conditions, stronger union organisation than they'd entered it with. That's because they organised to fight back through demonstrations, strikes, factory occupations and other forms of militant action. The way to undercut Trump's support base and the way to respond to the coming recession is the same, working class socialist politics. We need a combined industrial and political fight for jobs for all, for expansion of public services, an end to the bizarre situation where some can't find work and others find that they're working till they drop, a shorter working week, decent paid holiday. The pandemic shows the necessity of sick and isolation pay. The US needs free education, healthcare, and other services that make worth life worth living. We need a serious curb on police powers and social, not carceral, answers to crime. From afar, I must say I'm not involved in them, some of the debates on the US left around class politics and anti-racism have seemed unhelpful. I hope the other speakers can say more about this. I've seen debates framed as identity politics versus class reductionism. We cannot retreat from class, nor can we sideline fights around special oppression. Race, gender and other oppression exist in particular forms as they do because of their relationship to class, but they aren't reducible to it. The labour movement, the movement of the basic exploited class in capitalist society, has a duty of solidarity with the oppressed. 
Our job is to organise an integrated movement of solidarity with minorities, rejecting attempts to divide workers on the grounds of prejudice, fighting together to win all our battles. Our demands are for the establishment of values, priorities and rights that are starkly at odds with the values, priorities and interests of those who control the wealth in our society. Our tasks need a clear assertion of human solidarity and life, counterposed to the exploitative capitalist practices which dominate our lives and are glorified by bourgeois politicians and the media. Our programme demands and can mobilise people to fight for the reorganisation of that society. Clearly, this cannot happen consistently inside the Democrat Party. The left must strike out for independent class politics, and that means a road towards a workers' party. It also means unionising non-union workers and transforming the unions for class combat. Biden has claimed that he will be the strongest Labour president you've ever had. Biden promises to support the Protecting the Right to Organise Act, a labour law reform bill that will increase protections for union organising and collective bargaining and effectively prohibit state right to work laws. The bill passed in the House of Representatives in February, but by a vote of 224 to 194. Given the Democrats' poor performance in the Senate races, it would take a serious commitment from Biden to give it a chance of passing. That commitment will not come without a fight from the unions and that fight will not come without pressure from below. Before I end, I want to talk about the international context, because what we call Trumpism in the US is part of a global trend gaining strength since 2008. We have seen several far right initiatives, both electoral alliances and street movements. We've seen the elections of Modi, Erdogan, Orban, Bolsonaro, and they're all part of the same trend internationally. Authoritarians spreading conspiracy theories, religious reaction, racism and nationalism. In Poland, we've seen a magnificent mobilization through the women's strike against attacks from the far right government on abortion rights. Our solidarity has to go to all of those fighting back. In many places, politics seems bleak. In many places, it feels like we're having to fight battles that our grandparents already seem to have settled. But tremendous transformations in the consciousness and organization of the working class can happen quickly, but they don't happen naturally. They require educators, agitators and organisers for socialism. And that's the way that the left needs to move now. Thank you, Ruth. Um, we're now going to hear from the first of our international um, guests or international to those of us uh, outside the US. Um, that's Robert Cuffey. Um, again, Robert's a uh, socialist from Guyana based and active in New York, um, member of the uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Um, very grateful to Robert for joining us. So, Robert, if you'd like to unmute yourself, over to you. Thank you, Daniel. Um, so, as stated, I am um, originally from Guyana, uh, and this particular historical moment we're in um, has particular resonance for me as a Guyanese, because what seems to be in question in the United States for the first time ever, the first time in a generation, which is the peaceful transfer of power from one president to the other, is something that's in question during every election in Guyana and many elections in the rest of the world. And for example, in Guyana, we held our presidential elections in March and the uh, new president was not sworn in until August because of the disputes about who won the election. So I think, um, in keeping up with the tradition of uh, Caribbean radicalism and socialism specifically, I think Walter Rodney is pretty um, helpful in understanding this. He wrote this, gave this speech on the political economy of the Caribbean once where he talked about um, 
the latitudes of bourgeois democracy, which have been won and are permitted in the imperialist countries like the United States. And he talked about the fact that should things descend into a fascist situation in the United States, those measures of bourgeois democracy uh, would be taken away instantly by the state. And in the United States, we haven't gotten there yet, but the threat of it goes to show um, what Roots spoke about, the general undermining of the United States uh, previously dominant uh, role in the world and the ways in which it's kind of boomeranging back onto local politics in the United States. Um, so I would say that for both the working class and the left approaching this election, as we talk about this period now between um, the election that happened on November 3rd and uh, the inauguration ceremony that's supposed to happen in January, we have to reflect on the actual electoral campaign, right? And what would have been in the interest of the working class, oppressed people and the left. And to me, the natural answer would have been to hold your nose and vote for Biden because of the existential threat uh, Trump posed to working class organizing, organizing of oppressed people and the left. Um, Roots, for example, talked about the winking um, that President Trump gave towards the far right, but the winking stopped during that debate where he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. That's an open instruction, so open that when the Proud Boys demonstrated in DC yesterday um, as part of the MAGA rally to make America great again rally, they had that slogan from Trump on their shirt. So it's a more open turn towards inviting the disaffected uh, layers of our society to be part of a um, fascist militia, which we know in addition to turning the state against organizations of the working class and oppressed, fascism stirs up this disaffected petty bourgeois base to act as both uh, vigilantes and militias themselves. Um, and more importantly, I think the common sense position of uh, a tactical vote for Biden is something that can be could be gleaned just from looking at the experiences of the working class. Oftentimes socialists put themselves forward in the pedagogical relationship with the working class. We're there to follow us and we forget about the critical pedagogy of people like Rodney and Paula Freire where we're supposed to also be learning from the working class, right? And if in places where Biden didn't even have campaign machinery, people turned out in their numbers during the primaries to vote for him, it's an indicator that this hugely flawed candidate, a white supremacist of sorts himself, um, a sexist, uh, a neoliberal, a friend of Wall Street, a friend of segregationist past, that people are, if people are willing to vote for him, it means that there's something different about the candidate on the other side. And I think we have to ask what about the left um, led them to not see this threat, to underestimate the, Trump, the threat of Trumpism, to not understand the extent to which people would turn out for Trump. Um, Ruth mentioned, for example, the historic numbers in which people turned out for Biden, but Trump came a pretty close second, right? And uh, no one was really expecting that. And part of it has to do with this very um, dogmatic way of engaging in principles around Marxism. It's almost like the principles are uh, ascribed a priori. It's almost as if 
Uh, Moses is on the mount handing down the principles, whereas principles are supposed to be for Marxists, the lessons we glean from the history of the struggles of working class and oppressed people. And we can clearly understand the Democratic Party to be a uh, imperialist, racist, sexist, ruling class political party, but we also have to understand uh, intra-class differences all right, within the ruling class and that what Trump represents is this right-wing populist anti-establishment message, which has a lot of traction with um, regular working class voters, particularly because the role the Democratic Party has played in um, administering austerity under several neoliberal um, administrations, but moreover, specifically when Trump raised the slogan of make America great again, the Democrats had this tone deaf response of America is already great. But if you're a working class person in a deindustrialized area, um, if your family members are struggling through a K2 or an opioid epidemic, if you're not able to put food on the table, if you've lost your job, it's hard to conceive that America is already great. And the left, is in such an anti-liberal uproar that they fail to understand the need to tactically stand with the liberals in certain situations against Trump. Great examples would be the Supreme Court com confirmations of Kavanaugh and um, Amy Conan, uh, the impeachment efforts of the Democrats, even though they did it on the most limited and narrow legal basis, as opposed to the human rights violations that um, Trump has taken up. So both groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, which I'm a part, and the more traditional far left of uh, Trotskyists, Leninists, and Maoists pr pretty much came up with a position that we're not gonna um, vote in this election because the only choices are for a Democrat, or they said they're gonna waste their time and vote symbolically for the Green Party. And behind all this comes these like principles that they've put forward and plucked out the air. For us within the DSA, it was our Bernie or bust resolution that we passed at the 2019 National Convention, which said, should Bernie Sanders not um, win the Democratic Party nomination, we will not endorse any other candidate. And many people actually cheered the passing of this resolution, especially people on the far left, because they thought it was the DSA taking a principled stand. But again, if your principles are not grounded in the concrete historical reality of the moment, like grappling with your living history, they don't make sense. And for me, I was alarmed by the passage of that resolution, particularly because of the danger Trump posed. As an immigrant to this country, for example, like, you know, I have family members who feel a palpable threat, almost an existential threat from Trump in office. So to say so early on, almost a year before the election, that you're not going to endorse anyone um, should your favorite candidate lose, it's an abdication from the class struggle insofar as it's reflected on the electoral plane. Similarly, uh, the far left people um, around groups like Left Voice and so on, um, some members of the former International Socialist Organization have a principle of never ever voting for Democrats. Um, for good reason, of course, the Democrats are well known as the graveyard of social movements and uh, the betrayal of the women, um, people of color and uh, the labor movement that they use as part of their coalition. Nonetheless, this principle again makes no sense 
if you're concretely analyzing this schism within the U.S. ruling class between uh, Trumpism and everyone else, if you're paying attention to things like Trump's reaction to the Black Lives Matter protests being uh, unleashing the military on the protests, um, something that was opposed not just by the Democrats, but also by the Republican establishment and the military establishment. But if you pay attention to the fact that Trump has then um, resorted to creating a federal police force in Bortak through Attorney General Barr, you'll understand the depths to which we are close to a form of reaction not seen before. So a lot of these people in downplaying the dangers of Trump would say, for example, Trump is not a fascist. He doesn't meet the traditional demonstration um, definition of fascism. But as uh, Leon Trotsky points out, between bourgeois democracy and fascism, there's so many forms of government. And there's so many forms of government which threaten a reaction against the working class. And it's important to head those off. And that's where I see um, the left failing in that. So Ruth talked about the coalition that Trump is um, based on at this time. And I think one of the important parts of that coalition which has been left out is the police. And um, the police are especially part of Trump's coalition because Trump's role on the far right, Trump's role as a right-wing populist in the United States is one that was grounded in anti-Black racism. Like Trump is well known for taking out newspaper ads calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five when they were wrongly accused of um, raping a white woman. But moreover, Trump's grounding in the Tea Party movement came from his promotion of the racist birther controversy, alleging that President Obama was not born in the United States, right? So when the Black Lives Matter movement arose in, um, around the death of Trayvon Mer Martin and when it came back again this year around the uh, police murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, both the police and Trump saw it as something they could attack to try to use to polarize. The opposite actually happened in that it was the greatest protest movement in the history of the country and shifted national consciousness around people's perceptions of uh, Black people's experiences with the police. No longer were there questions like, well, did they comply? Were they following orders? People began to acknowledge in a concrete way that what was happening Oh, sorry, I think I got muted for a second. Um, what was happening in the experiences of Black people with the police is something um, truly like they can believe Black people now. So like even myself on um, November 1st, I was arrested by the NYPD at a counter demonstration against uh, the Make America Great Again rally, which was going to roll through New York City in an attempt to um, intimidate voters here. And at that demonstration, we had a victory of sorts insofar as the Proud Boys and the MAGA people didn't show up for their rally. But we found out later they didn't show up because the New York Police Department, the NYPD contacted them and said, don't come here. There's too much Black Lives Matter and Antifa here. We don't think we can keep you safe. So when the Proud Boys got their warning from the police and they did not show up, what happened was the police waited for our demonstration to dwindle the numbers and then kettle us, um, blocked us, our exits, refusing to allow us to disperse, and then picked out who they saw as various leaders in the protest for arrest. Um, 
So subsequently looking at um, videos of my arrest, there's a clear order from the NYPD regarding me saying, grab the guy with the bullhorn. So like the danger of Trumpism is that he may be isolated in some ways from various sectors of the ruling class and the political establishment. But those he has in his camp are literally the, the, the people that constitute what Marxists traditionally think of as the state, the armed bodies of men. So should he refuse to demit office, who does he have on his side? He has the police, he has immigration customs and enforcement. He has all the federal police forces that formed the force called BORTAC, which has been unleashed on various liberal cities um, within the uprising. Um, so all that to say that a Biden administration is a stopgap measure against Trump, but we can't have any illusions that Biden will either fulfill his political uh, campaign promises, nor can we have illusions that he um, will take up any of the more leftist programs that Bernie Sanders put in. And I think that goes to what Ruth spoke about, about this kind of recurring economic crisis. And as Marxists, if we fully understand the crisis of profitability of the capitalist system, then we understand that the Great Depression of the 1930s was not something solved by the New Deal, right? The New Deal programs were something won through a hard fought struggle, but the Great Depression was still there. It is the US's entry into World War II that dragged it out of the Great Depression and created the post-war era of um, posterity and the boom generally associated with uh, the period of the American dream. But that crisis reasserted itself soon after in the 70s and has been reasserting itself more frequently and uh, with much more depth into both the US and the international economy. So the tasks of the working class at this time is to overcome the historical deficits, particular to the United States. Um, it is to build a political organization uh, of the working class. And that doesn't mean like the perennial call for a labor party that you hear on the United States left, because if you're calling for a labor party, you're calling on the labor bureaucracy, for the most part, to form a part party. And Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO at this time has very little interest in doing anything uh, near that radical. What we're calling on is to, for a real re-examination of the history of the American class struggle. It's, you know, we talk a lot here, for example, about the American working class, but the reality is most American workers don't conceive of themselves as workers, right? If you do a, like, any basic sociology 101 class where you ask people about their class background, they're very likely to tell you middle class because that's what, what everyone aspires to. And the betrayals of the um, Communist Party in the 1930s with their accommodations towards the Roosevelt administration pretty much undermined the groundwork for the Labor Party and the building up of class consciousness in this country is something that's going to happen organically through people's own struggles, the question is, what is the role of socialists? And socialists need to be the ones to be there every moment along the way to say that these struggles are great, 
But we have to ask why we're struggling for these things time and time again. Black people have to ask why we're struggling for basic civil rights that we struggled for um, at the end of the Civil War, that we struggled for during the Civil Rights Movement, that we struggled for during ghetto rebellions when there were uprising in Harlem, Watts and different places, and why we've had to have rebellions in Cincinnati in 2001, in um, Baltimore, and uh, Ferguson in 2014 and 2015, and in Minneapolis in this year. And it has to do with the fact that the capitalist system, far from being able to fulfill the dream of um, equality, can't even fulfill the most basic democratic demands. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement is at the spearhead of this because our main demand to stop killing Black people is not something the United States uh, mil uh, police forces are able to achieve, even since the period in which we launched this rebellion for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the police have killed um, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, the police have killed David McAtee in Kentucky, the police have um, killed Tony McDade in Florida. It just won't stop. So we know it only takes a spark. There will be a spark. The question is, how do socialists position themselves at the heads of these movements? And it has to do with employing a diversity of tactics that includes things like voting for Biden, building temporary tactical alliances with the devil and his grandmother, to paraphrase um, Trotsky, against a greater danger like Trump. And in this particular moment, like looking at the uh, reports on the rally, uh, the MAGA rally in DC yesterday, which brought in about um, 200,000 far-right supporters for Trump, it's not clear that he will demit office. It's not clear that on Inauguration Day, it won't take the Secret Service dragging him out of office. And what needs to happen is that the socialists in the U.S. need to start looking beyond the borders of the U.S. to the international struggles of the working class to see how these issues have been dealt with before in the rest of the world, but also to acknowledge that austerity the austerity threatened by a Biden administration is not something that is a policy choice, but it's a lawful response of the capitalist system in crisis. If governments as radical as the Workers' Party in Brazil, as Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain could not resist the implementation of austerity, we have no reason to believe that a less radical Bernie Sanders administration would not have resorted to the same thing. And this centrist um, Biden administration has made clear that austerity is on the order of the day. Socialists should say, okay, there's a crisis, someone needs to pay for it. Who should pay for the crisis? Well, people like me, I'm a city employee. I work for the city of New York. Um, right now, all our raises have been frozen. Uh, my union has agreed to give hundreds of millions of dollars of payments to our welfare fund back to the city to avert layoffs. But at the end of the day, we should not be the ones paying for the crisis because we didn't create the crisis. We're not in charge of managing the crisis. This is where a scheme of progressive taxation needs to come in to make the people responsible for the crisis pay. In New York City, for example, a great example is Wall Street, right? Like the center of finance capital of the world is housed here. And in New York State, we have a law in the books that says every stock traded on Wall Street should um, bring about a certain percentage for the state of New York, except we give a rebate to Wall Street on this stock transfer tax. And as a result, 
if we actually enforce the stock transfer tax, we can raise about $10 billion over four years. But we live in a state and a city that's so friendly to Wall Street, they refuse to tap this source of revenue and they're instead balancing their budgets on the backs of the working class. What can we do with $10 billion? Well, in New York City, the largest landlord is the city of New York insofar as they're in charge of the city's public housing authority called NYCHA. And NYCHA just so happens to be $10 billion behind in capital repairs, which is why people at NYCHA live in buildings without heat. They live in buildings- Start to wrap up, Robert, if that's okay. Thank you. Um, They live in buildings without heat. They live in buildings without gas. So socialists have a perfect opportunity to turn the priorities of our system upside down. Currently, our system says uh, private property and profits over people. Socialists should be able to say, look, these are concrete ways in which we can turn these priorities on its head. Let's defund the police, fund our schools, fund our hospitals, but don't have any illusions that the economic crisis we're under is not real. Thanks very much, uh, Robert. And our final um, speaker is uh, Thomas Harrison from the editorial board of New Politics. Um, Thomas, thanks very much for being with us. If you'd like to unmute and uh, go ahead. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for having me. Um, By the way, my caption says teacher, and that's because I'm using a a laptop that was given to me by the school I used to work for, and I can't figure out a way to t- put my name in that caption, but it's, it's Tom, by the way, not not Thomas. Um, Sorry. Uh, that's okay. No, you didn't know. Um, just just letting you know. Um, there are lots of things that, that Robert said that I that I disagree with about um, the about our attitude, what the left's attitude should to be to Biden and to the Democratic Party, but and I hope I'll get into them in, in the course of, of my um, my remarks. But what I want to start out by saying, um, and this is, and Ruth said this already, but I just want to emphasize it, um, that this election should have been a landslide for Biden. I mean, here here, here is this guy running for president in the midst of a of these unprecedented crises, a pandemic, uh, uh, an economic collapse, um, and and the fact that it was so narrow. I think is a is 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 a is testimony to the bankruptcy uh, of the Democratic Party in 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 this country today. Forty um, percent of union members voted for Trump, um, and he and his the 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 margins were were extremely thin um, in in the in, in working class Rust Belt counties in the Midwest, which are predominantly working class, um, and I think that. One of the reasons is that that the people who um, are um, uh, whose livelihoods are threatened um, by um, by the uh, lockdown um, are given were given by Biden no concrete plan for sustaining their incomes. Um, small business owners were given no plan for sustaining small businesses while until such time as COVID is is, is overcome. Um, the, this, this Biden is committed to austerity, um, as, as Robert mentioned, um, as are the vast majority of the Democratic Party um, uh, of, their, of their membership in Congress. Um, the, the, the left of the Democrats, about which you hear so much these days, Sanders, of course, AOC, the rest of the squad, is an infinitesimal percentage of the Democrats in Congress. The vast majority of them are, are hardened neoliberals. Um, uh, pro pro corporate types, um, and um, uh, 
Uh, that's what we're that's what we're up against, I think. Um, so, the um, uh, the main problem is that the uh, the left lacks what the right has, which is is a political party to shape public opinion. Um, the um, we we there there is no until that exists we, uh, we will not be able to decouple hostility to the establishment which is of course widespread uh, among the among the working class with bigotry um, those two are linked in most people's minds today and there they needn't be um, I think you know a, 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 camp, a campaigning left um, an independent party that was not uh, beholden to corporate power could be able to make that case um, but 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 we can't now as long as as long as we are still um, uh, tied to the Democrats and that's that's part of the problem with the DSA today is that um, um, uh, the main problem I would say is that it continues to be most of it anyway um, uh, embedded in Democratic Party uh, electoral politics um, uh, and and uh, shows really no interest in, in independent political action in the near future. On paper, formally, DSA is in favor of a workers' party, but that goal just keeps getting put off and to, to, to the distant future uh, um, and, and um, is, is nowhere in sight. And in, in, in the meantime, it's considered to be too soon to do anything about it. Now, uh, a lot of people also on the left also say, well, we can't have a party of the working class until there is a mass social upheaval by the working class. Now, I think that, that, with that, there, that no successful party, Orker's party, can be built until there is such an upheaval. But, but you know, it's, it's quite possible that there, there will be one in the near future um, in response to the crisis and everything else, else that's happening. And what, what needs to, to occur is that a, a party has to be created before that, before that upsurge, to be able to um, attract um, those who are revolting against the system. And uh, I think that, that um, uh, you know, soon uh, in the coming year, um, I, uh, if there are enough members of DSA and others on the left who are, who are willing to do this, that they could organ begin to organize something. Um, and that, um, however, there's no real talk about doing that yet. There is an organization called Movement for People's Party uh, led by some um, a former uh, Sanders staffers from, from back in 2016. Um, and they are committed to creating such a party, but I don't really have a sense of how much backing they have yet or how much interest there is on the left in general. In DSA, I believe there's almost no interest in this. Um, and it, I think it's something that, that, they, that, that, that ought to be supported. Um, Biden is not just any lesser evil. Um, I mean, I, he is, he is, I agree, a lesser evil compared to Trump, but he's a, a really, um, he, has, he has a despicable record. I mean, this, this guy um, 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 helped the Republicans pass the Iraq war resolution. He voted for the uh, 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 Patriot Act, the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, he voted for the uh, uh, legislation to make it hard to declare bankruptcy, to get out of debt. Um, and he's been, his whole career has been bankrolled by the credit card industry. So he's a deeply, deeply corporate Democrat. Um, and as I say, he's also um, somebody who believes in austerity. And I think that the promises in his, um, uh, in the Democratic Party platform 
um, uh, will never will never come to uh, will never come will never will never be implemented, um, barring some kind of mass uh, upsurge that 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 forces him to do something. Um, and, 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 and as for Trump's dangerousness, well, of course, he's an extremely dangerous man. And, and he is, as, as, as Robert said, he has um, uh, promoted and encouraged the growth of, of far-right militias um, and, and fascist, uh, uh, fascist thugs. Um, but I think that, you know, his, the, 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 the talk of a coup at the time of the election was, was really overblown, um, that if he had any definite plans to, to, to do anything, it, it fell flat. Um, and uh, right now, it's, it's hard to imagine, at least for a while, um, the forces of the, the, the violent forces of fascism in the United States as, having any, as, as, as posing any real um, threat beyond, you know, um, 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 the, the attacks here and there against against demonstrations of killing of individuals that kind of thing um, all of which is is serious but doesn't I think um, it require us to support uh, Biden uh, and the Democratic Party in defense in, in, in defense against these things um, Biden has promised to establish um, normalcy to return the country to normalcy. And of course, a lot of people after four years of, of this, this monster uh, inhabiting our consciousness uh, day after day, uh, people long for normalcy, um, but they forget that the normalcy that preceded Trump was actually not so different from conditions under Trump, apart from his um, uh, you know, right-wing rhetoric and his encouragement of, of, the, of the Proud Boys and other fascist gangs, actually, Trump's foreign policy was not so different from Obama's. In fact, probably Obama and Bush, in fact, not probably, certainly, Obama and Bush are responsible for more people being killed in foreign countries than Trump was. Um, police violence, um, there are, I think the police killed on average of a thousand people a, a year in, uh, under Trump, the same figure was true under Obama. Uh, and I don't think that Biden being in office will itself make any difference in that respect. I think that, that um, what has to happen is, um, of course, a, a powerful movement for defunding the police and, 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 and stopping them from killing black people. But, that's, that, that, but that has to be a movement. We can't rely on the Democratic Party to do that. Um, and I think that a movement that's backed up by, by a political party of its own is going to be much more effective um, than one without uh, such, a, such, a, such, a, such a party. Um, the, um, sorry, um, um, what else did I wanna say? The, the, about, about, about foreign policy, the, um, Biden is of course an, an imperialist um, uh, who supported uh, virtually every war. Um, during his career that the United States has engaged in. Um, I don't see that changing uh, under his presidency. A lot of neocons who came out in support of him have actually already said that, that we, we, can, we think that Biden will be, will be, will be hawkish on Iran. Um, and that um, uh, if, if, in fact, if the Democrats um, um, gain control of the Senate, the majority leader will be uh, Chuck Schumer, who voted against the the, the Iran deal, um, so we can't we can't hope for much from the Democrats when it comes to foreign policy either.